Hi, this is Michael from The Intersection. Now, for each of our episodes, we'll be following up the first segment with an interview with an expert on the topic. Recently, we had the pleasure of talking to journalist and broadcaster John Highfield. Many listeners will know John Highfield from his 35 years as journalist and broadcaster on ABC Radio. In 1969, he was the inaugural host of the ABC Radio's PM program. Over the next 35 years at the ABC, he was foreign correspondent on numerous occasions and host of Radio National's long-running program, The World Today. But as we'll hear, John had already paid some dues working for the Lee Gordon organisation while still a teenager. His recollections are simply fascinating. John, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure, Michael. So, Lee Gordon, John, how did that all start for you? Well, I was out of high school and a young panel operator at the preeminent radio station playing modern music in those days, which was 2UE in Sydney, and it was located in Bly Street in Sydney, in the centre of the Central Business District, and I was a panel operator on air duty and uh, some recording responsibilities in the commercial sector. Now, I was on a shift on a Sunday night where we had a lot of pre-taped religious programs because the law said that you had to have a certain percentage of religious programming beyond your music, and 2UE used Sunday night where it had a lot of pre-recorded programs. So the duty announcer, who was Graham Webb, quite well-known in the industry, he was on duty, and we recorded some commercial business on the side while the half-hour programs and the hour-long programs were going out off tape to air. So I went into the studio, the recording studio, between one of these tape shows with Graham to do some commercials for a guy named Lee Gordon, an entrepreneur that I wasn't overly familiar with. And he came in with a script and gave it to Graham and he went into the studio and we started recording these pre-scripted advertisements for a music show that he was bringing to Australia. It was it was the Everly Brothers, as I recall, a long mm-hmm. time ago, 60 years ago. Sure. But, but I recall, and I'm sitting there as a young panel operator, shaking my head because we're talking about music and there's no music in the commercial. Mm. And this enigmatic man behind me who always had a half smile on his face, this yank, said to me in fairly vociferous terms, what the hell are you shaking your head about? And I said, well, sir, there's no music, and you're talking about music. Smart ass, he said to me. Smart ass, are you? Well, what would you do? And I said, I'd get some music from the library of the features and bring up stabs between the words, just modify the script a bit. So that's what I did. He said, well, go on, go and show me. So I went to the library and got some Everly Brothers discs out and so on from the music library, put them on, modified the script with Graham, and that's how we did it. And at the end of the session, he offered me a job. (laughs) So presumably Gordon had been doing ads prior to that, just with no music happening, I guess. Well, this was almost the first of the rock era that he was bringing out. And he was transitioning across from more jazz-based stuff and crooners and things like that, Mm. which he had previously done in previous years to a different audience. And he was experimenting with bringing in the big show rock music era to Australia. And this was one of the first he did, so he decided to go to the preeminent pop music station, record some commercials to be played out on there, 30-second, 60-second spots, you know, and to generate some interest in the rock music that he was about to embark on. And that's how it all occurred. Yeah. Okay. So 
the job you were offered what we what did that actually entail well it was many, well he wanted me to come into his office first of all and worked as a general factotum in the office during the week but he also wanted me as a young person with a voice that he thought could work as MC on stage at all these big shows and that's what happened for a couple of years i couldn't believe it at the age of 18 or 19 years of age suddenly i'm being offered this extraordinary job of appearing on stage with all these big rock stars that were being mm. imported from America and also locals like Johnny O'Keefe, Cole Joy and the Joy Boys who were just emerging as known names in the music business um, against advice that Lee Gordon had from others from America saying, oh, you've got to stick with the American big names and that these Aussies are not known and that, well, we proved yeah. the difference with that, yeah. And so... It strikes me that some of those shows must have, must have felt like being thrown to the lions, more or less, in front of a big, big crowd. Well, it was. It, it, the old Sydney Stadium, which was down in Rushcutter Bay, of course, the old tin shed as it was known, was an extraordinarily cold and freezing place in winter, overly hot in summer. But Gordon had a revolving stage put in where the ring used to be for the boxing. And they had this extraordinary stage which would go clockwise for a while and then it would have to go anti-clockwise to unwind the microphone cords which were hidden <laughs> underneath the stage and so on. And so you had it going backwards and forwards around. And it was divided up into four quadrants. And Lee Gordon's idea was that if you had a big show... It didn't matter what time it started, if it started a bit late, but once it started, it had to go for the two and a bit hours, non-stop, non-stop. absolute non-stop music. And that's something as an ageing uh, rocker that I find difficult when I go to concerts in Australia these days. Sometimes there's a five and ten minute gap between acts coming on. Oh, at least that. Yeah, yeah. At, at least that, while the different bands set up mm. and so on. Whereas Gordon organised it so as all of the band setups could be done there and even when they were bringing on a new bunch of musicians from some of the visiting acts that had their own specialist guitarists and so on and drummers that they wanted to use, they would have another Aussie band usually, locally, the Joy Boys or one of those, doing what what he called walk-up music. So you'd keep the audience going. And he demanded of me that I move around the quadrants on the stage, even between the acts, keeping the excitement levels up by getting the audience to play off with shouting like in shout, oi, 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 oi. And we had a competition with the quadrants of the, of the big show audience going around and all trying to outshout each other. Okay, so you were hyping the audience while you were... Yeah, and you're keeping the level of excitement mm-hmm. and, and that going in between the acts. And then suddenly, when everything was ready and I'd get a signal from a stage manager down in the pits and that, and he'd put, just put a thumb up, and I'd do the introduction. Direct from Los Angeles, <laughs> you know, etc. Yeah. I'm intrigued by how, with the revolving stage and yet the non-stop performance, does that mean a band was setting up on behind the band who was yes. performing? Yes, yes. Yeah, you'd have additional musicians coming in behind the band and, and plugging in and setting up okay. and, and so on into the amps and so on. Huge amps over uh, mounted above the revolving stage and so on. But also in those days, a lot of the Fender guitars and that had their own amps on stage, and so they were yep. plugging in. It it wasn't as sophisticated a sound equipment as we have now, and a lot of the small boxes for the Fender guitars and so on were set up while the band was doing the walk-up music and plugging in. Yeah. 
One of the aspects of the big shows that really sticks out to me from my knowledge of it was that a lot of these American artists were, well, Gene Vincent is one example, Little Richard's another. Um, these were their first shows outside of North America. So Australia actually got them prior to Britain or Europe or anywhere else. Yes. Um, was there a sense at the time that something really special was happening, that we were actually getting served quite amazingly? Look, I think probably teenagers like I was in my late teens then probably real, didn't realise the significance mm. of the history that was being made. But suddenly we were being exposed to all of these people that we were listening to on stations like the old 2UE and so on, and then 2SM replaced that later on and became the big rock music station but um, in those days you see what we used to do was follow the American top 40 all the time and Qantas stewards would be paid on their regular runs to Los Angeles and that a significant sum of money each week to buy the latest top 40 records and bring them in for the two UE okay. disc jockeys. And so that. The, the station would budget for that? Yes, okay. indeed. Yeah, and they used to pay Qantas stewards that they had to buy up the records in the new, the latest in the top 40 in, from America in the record shop, bring it back on the Qantas flight and hand it over to a courier when they came in at the airport and they'd be paid significant sums of money to buy the records and and as a reward for bringing them in so that... Withers and, and these people who were on 2UE had the top um, pop music from America. That's what was happening. And, and so Australian kids were listening to the music that Lee Gordon wanted to bring into the country, you see, with the, the, the brothers Everly, as mm. he used to call them, and, and so on. Um, there's an amusing story of Chubby Checker. And we want to hear that. Yeah, he was in the back bar of the Rex Hotel in King's Cross about 10 minutes before a show was due to begin and he was having a lot of friendly conversations with various people and I was, part of my duties was to make sure that the artist that I had to introduce was there and available in the stadium down the road in Roscutter Bay and it was a rainy Friday night. First show, 10 past 6 in the evening, couldn't get him out of the back bar and I went out the front to look at whether I could get a taxi to get him down the few kilometre or so down to the stadium in a hurry if I could drag him out. I more or less persuaded him that we had to get moving 10 minutes before showtime, etc., etc. Couldn't get a cab. And suddenly this big American car came up and I recognised it as one of Lee Gordon's employees, so to speak. Uh, he had a lot of strange people, King's Cross Yanks, I used to call mm. them, this guy was called Freeman, and I'm not sure whether he later turned out to be a colourful racing identity, but I knew him as Pete Freeman in those days. And here he came in this huge American limousine that he drove up the up Maclay Street in King's Cross, and I walked out and, and hailed him down, and I said, he said, what's the problem? Because he knew me from Lee's office, and I said, I can't get Chubby Checker down for the start of the show. And he said, well, that's not a problem. He said bring him out and I'll get you a taxi. He didn't offer to give me his car. So he walked into the middle of Maclay Street, rainy Friday night, and stood in front of a taxi that was coming up with a passenger in it, walked around to the back door, opened the door, grabbed the passenger, hauled him out by the collar, <laughs> put $5 or pounds in his hand and said, this is my taxi, you got a problem? <laughs> and we put Chubby into the back of the cab and took him down to the stadium. <laughs> and Chubby was still able to perform Oh, well. yes. <laughs> yes he, Total he, professional. Uh, he, he suddenly locked into the fact that he was on stage uh, on 
my introduction in five minutes' time and he came dressed and ready to go. So your job of having to get the talent at the actual stadium mm. as well at times, um, were there other incidents? Oh, no, everybody similarly... else behaved quite well. Right. Um, there were lots of nefarious things that were going on at the time that I, as a youngster, didn't quite mm. suss into. Um, Lee called me into his office one day and he had um, a couple of people in there and he said it, his office was in the old Commonwealth Bank building right opposite the Sydney Stadium on down on Bayswater Road and he said to me in that great American accent that he had with the half enigmatic smile that he always portrayed, he said, John, I want you to go down to the Orbit Travel Service in Pitt Street and buy two tickets first class on tonight's flight up to London and they're to be in the name of Smith and Jones. And if they ask you where you're from, you tell them you're from the Acme Message Company. <laughs> that was the sort of thing that happened around Lee Gordon's office. I never asked the question as to why I had to buy those tickets, but they, when I came back with the tickets and the Orbit travel bags to hand to, the, uh, to him for the flight that night to London, there were two characters in his office that I'd never seen before that he was obviously helping somebody out by evacuating people from Australia fairly quickly. So the nefarious activities you refer to, I mean, it's known that he had some business arrangements with Abe Saffron yes. at the original Lay Girls with Jack Rooklyn. Yeah, and, um, and with the Diamond Horseshoe up on Oxford Street. He was a, There was an old a nightclub that he tried to start up called the Diamond Horseshoe. He asked me if I'd go and work as an MC there, and I said no because I didn't like the, the concept but um, as part of that deal he asked me with Johnny O'Keefe in the office one day to ring the Philip Morris company or somebody and see if I could get 2,000 filters for cigarettes and I said what, what do you mean filter cigarettes no just the filters for cigarettes and it was for the Diamond Horseshoe nightclub they had girls like playgirls there selling cigarettes and that off a tray and things and it was obvious that they wanted to put the filters into the end of cigarettes to make them look like uh, standard cigarettes when they were selling them for something else so I rang the Philip Morris company and asked them if I could buy just 2,000 filters for cigarettes if they could supply them and they said what what for and I said well I don't know I just want to buy that <laughs> so that was the sort of thing that went on and what was the concept of the Diamond Horseshoe oh it was a nightclub um, right. yeah it was a strip club basically um a late night club I don't think it survived for too long and I think at one stage he had a French uh, trans person called Coxinelle that he bought out for it and uh, Coxinelle caused a lot of problems for Lee because he was staying in Lee's apartment which was I think near uh, is it Martins Beach down in the eastern suburbs Lady Martins Beach I think it was a sort of penthouse or down there and this uh, trans figure, Coxinelle, used to parade with her breasts showing on the beach, this former male with breasts, and that caused a lot of trouble with the locals. In the early 60s. In the early yeah. 60s. Well, the late 50s, really. Okay. Yeah, 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 early 60s, late, late 50s, and that caused a bit of an uproar for Lee, so he had to deal with that as well. 
He also was into other things, like uh, he had a, a company which uh, provided pensioners with cladding for their houses on uh, long-term payment plans called Permatex Corporation with some other people. He dabbled in all sorts of things to keep the money supply going. Mm. And you mentioned Abe Saffron. He sometimes used to pay our wages. Normally, we'd get them from Max Moore, who was the manager in the office, now deceased. But on some nights, I can remember at the stadium after the last show had finished and that going behind the bleachers and walking up to the dressing rooms, and Abe Saffron was there in the half dark with a great wad of money in his hand, and he would say, your wages on the sheet here say you've owed this much for this week, and he'd count out the notes and hand them to us. So that... The money behind the story, I guess, is a, a, no one's really going to get no, an answer on where that came from. No, frankly. it's not. And, yeah. of course, Lee had um, many fingers in many pies to keep going. He was quite often going broke, but then he would obviously make a lot of money. When you've got 12,000 people sitting in the old tin shed and paying good money, it's quite a turnover twice a night, 24, 25,000 people and whatever they paid. But Lee had um, health problems as well, psychiatric problems, mm. which have been documented. And I can remember once that I had to go up as part of my office weekly duties to the old International Post Office, which was up at Central Railway, the Parcels Post Office up there, and get a parcel from Hawaii, which was medication um, prescribed by a psychiatrist in Hawaii that uh, Lee had seen on one of his trips back to the States. And it was a fairly potent medicine that was never allowed in Australia okay. up to that point. And I had a lot of questioning when I went to the customs department at the post office, the parcels post, asking me questions about whether it was for me or so somebody else. You realise what's in it? I said, I don't have a clue. I'm just told by my boss to come and and get this thing and it was medicine and I had to sign a form and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know what it was. It was some sort of high-powered medication that had never been seen in Australia, but they allowed it to go through to him. So you know. I heard a story that there was a period where Gordon more or less disappeared from it some months mm. unbeknownst to his Australian staff and was later found to be at a institution in Hawaii, a psychiatric yeah. centre. Well, that probably had a lot to um, do with the, the earlier stuff with the medication. Yeah. I can't recall whether it was post or after that. I mean, I I, I only survived for a couple of years, and um, a, a great music specialist, um, John Brennan, who was really well known yeah. in the music industry uh, for radio mm. and that, he came to one of the big shows and saw me on stage during the emceeing and offered me a job at 2SM, which was then taking over from 2UE as the big music station in town. Yeah, and so you yeah. took the job as a broadcaster. At well, 2SM I went. At, I went back technically as a panel operator, and then became a broadcaster. And uh, that led to my later career, fortuitously, when um, in the, um, the the 60s, mid 60s, 2SM sent um, um, general manager over to the state side to have a look at what was going to happen with stations like 2SM and that and they came up with the concept of, um, of live news and cars on the road giving reports from fires and ambulance chasing and so on mm -hmm. and news 24 hours a day uh, and that's why they offered me 
a cadetship as a journalist, and uh, so I became a journalist cadet at the 2SM news radio sort of operation, and that changed the face of Australia forever. They also, at about the same time, had gone into talkback radio with um, with Juan Casey, Ron Casey, mm. being the, one of the first uh, on air, and I was producing him um, on his nightly show when they started talkback radio, and then they introduced the live newscasts and they bought a fleet of Volkswagens cars and so on and, and aeroplanes for traffic patrol and shark patrol and all of that. So it changed the nature a bit of the music as well. And I guess this would have been the time where 2SM really was the big station oh, later absolutely. in the 60s. Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, later in the 60s it really did that and, um, and you know, eventually they changed again and they wanted me to stay on as a creative writer in the sales department, but by then I had the journalistic uh, mm. uh, bug and I was uh, just graduated my four-year cadetship and was a low-graded journalist and I wanted to become a foreign correspondent. The only place that offered that was the ABC and I had enough money in my pocket to survive and I intended to go to North Queensland and have a long holiday but I got nervous the second day out, walked into the ABC newsroom on William Street <laughs> near King's Cross and uh, stayed there for the next 40 plus years. And everyone is very grateful you did. <laughs> um, some personal memories, John. What were some of the better concerts that you oh, recall look, seeing the, at that point? Look, uh, the brothers Everly were, were, were really very, very good. Um, and did they tour a few times? Yes, they did, a couple of times. Okay. Uh, Bobby Rydell, I got a really close association with Bobby Rydell and particularly his manager who was a really nice guy and and I got along well with them. Crash Craddock, um, mm. a lesser known name, but a, a very nice person. A, a, a yeah, young and notable in that he was bigger in Australia really than yes, just about in, anywhere else. Yes, than in New York. Yeah. He, he was a native New Yorker mm. um, who really didn't, understand the fame that he had achieved in Australia so well. He was a third-ranking sort of rock music person with only one big hit, I think, when he came to Australia. But he was a really cool guy, and I took him out and introduced him to a lot of our friends, and we had um, some coffees and things at, uh, at various little cafes over on the beaches and things like that, and he had a swim at Bondi with me and everything. He was a really nice person. And... Um, I mean, there were some eccentrics, of course, in there. Um, lots of eccentric rock stars that came through. Cole Joy and uh, Kevin and, and Cole um, Jacobson, Cole Joy, they were really lovely people. I got along very well with Johnny O'Keefe, too. I had that red car, that big American car that he rode off and the, the terrible accident that oh. he had. I used to sometimes get that at weekends to drive home and make all of my mates okay. over in Cremorne where I lived <laughs> with great envy <laughs> driving the great big Pontiac I think so it was. So this, correct me if I'm wrong on this but this is the car when he was on a touring coming back yeah. from Queensland. Yes, that's right and he rode off Yeah, and, and, and had a very severe accident and was in hospitalised. Yeah, that that was the red, I think it was a Pontiac Fury or something like that. Yeah, and did, and did I used Lee to, import that car into Australia? Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm not sure how he got it, but but they were great mates. And and that the other one, of course, was Little Richard, who um, went through this, I suspect, a big, big publicity thing where they were up. And I did, wasn't on that trip, 
but he went up to Stockton and Newcastle to do a show and was on the Stockton ferry when he suddenly found God and peeled off all of the rings and things that he had and threw them over the side of the ferry saying, the Lord is upon us. <laughs> and I've heard stories about people diving into that part of the river to try and... But, no doubt an apocryphal yeah, story. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. And when we travelled, of course, it was quite interesting because Lee used to charter a DC-3 aircraft to fly us up to Brisbane and down to Melbourne with the big show and all the compliments the the Everly brothers and all of us and Bobby Rydell and all of the crew sitting in these DC-3 aircraft and we used to play cricket in the aisle of the aircraft as we went with with we'd roll up paper balls and and um the Jacobsons started this Cole and that Cole Joy and that and we used to play cricket up and down the aisle of these DC-3 aircraft as we flew down to Melbourne. The other peculiar thing, mentioning um, the, the Brisbane and Melbourne, where they had the festival halls in mm. those days, um, was it was a phenomenon that you never saw in Sydney. And that was during the concerts, people would light candles and they would move them backwards and forwards in time to the music. It was quite extraordinary. Wow. Whether fire regulations were breached mm. is unknown, but that was a symbol of the shows in both the Festival Hall in Brisbane and in Melbourne that I can distinctly remember standing on stage and looking out into the darkness and seeing as the music started up, all these candles going backwards and forwards in time with the music and torches people held. And it was a tradition in both um, Brisbane and Melbourne, but never happened in Sydney. Chubby Checker with The Fly. I don't know about you, but I will never again be able to hear the name Chubby Checker without thinking of John Highfield's story of racing up to King's Cross's old Rex Hotel and trying to convince the inebriated Chubby Checker that he really did need to leave the bar and get on stage down at the Sydney Stadium. Great stuff. Thank you to John Highfield for joining us. And thank you for listening to The Intersection. My name is Michael Fisher, production by Rob Marginberg. We'd like to give special thanks to Eastside Radio, 89.7 FM. And don't forget to follow The Intersection on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just search The Intersection underscore Eastside FM. That's The Intersection underscore Eastside FM. The Intersection was recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty never ceded.